Amen, amen. This morning we are in Isaiah chapter 65. If you want to begin to find your way there, Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to be uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, so 17 through 25. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And so today we are really addressing the subject of joy. Uh, Ken asked me earlier this week, he said, look, you're talking about joy. Is it going to be joyous or are you going to make us feel bad about not having enough joy? I said, I don't know. It's really kind of a toss up. We'll just have to see how it plays out. But Isaiah gives us this really clear picture of kind of what should be the fuel for our joy, what should be the kind of object of our joy. And he begins to describe it in a ways that, that probably many of us have not sat through and thought through. And it's kind of a different way to look at this. Now, I can tell you that when Valerie and I, uh, before we had kids, we were in uh, one of those financial classes where everybody pays everything with cash and kind of whatever it was going through that. And so we asked people that had kids, we said, look, at some point, if God blesses, we're going to have children. What's some advice that you would give us? What's something that you would tell us that would be helpful for us as future potential parents? And they said, make every stage your kids go through your favorite stage. They said, every, every time your kids get to something, and so they begin to drool, they begin to teeth, or they begin to walk, or they begin to talk, or they begin to do all these things, set in your mind that that is going to be your favorite. And don't go through those phases saying, oh, I just can't wait until they can speak whole sentences, or oh, I just can't wait until they can run, or oh, I just can't wait until they jump. Because if you live your life and raise your kids in that way, you're going to miss all of these wonderful things along the way. So we have sought from the very beginning to find joy and to be captivated in that moment. And if you've had a terrible two or a three-nager, you know that some days you wake up and you say, joy, it's going to be joy until they wake up and then you really begin to pray. Or maybe the way that you've kind of gone through things is you, is you begin to think about life as a process. And so you're in the midst of school or you're in the midst of a bad relationship or you're in the midst of a difficult situation at work and you just think, on the other side of this project, on the other side of this class, on the other side of this degree, on the other side of this relationship, that's where joy is. And so you, you're looking at it. And so in the midst of traveling through this, you don't derive a terrific amount of joy. You're not really enjoying joy in this moment. Joy for you is placed on the other side of difficulty. Isaiah offers us an incredible corrective for both of those approaches. He says, we find joy in God and we find joy in God in eternity. Listen to this. Isaiah is writing a couple of hundred years before the exiles would return from Babylon. And so he's writing and he's addressing all their various ills, all the various ways they have done wrong and they have sinned and what it's going to be like for them in captivity and what it's going to be like for them to come back. But the thing that he asked them to focus on, the thing that he asked them to derive and find their lasting joy in is not a return to the land but a land that doesn't perish, a land that doesn't die, and a hope that springs eternal. Let's start in verse 17. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to these people who would be taken into captivity, and look what he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
God's not just telling them, look, it's going to be okay for 70 years you're going to be in the land, but at some point I'm going to bring you back. No, in fact, he points them to this recreative endeavor where God says, everything you see is going to be remade. Everything you see is going to be fashioned and reformed, and it is going to be the way that it was originally designed to be. So God is inviting us through Isaiah to to journey back to Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in writing this and in saying this, God's not giving us a description that he created everything up high and he created everything down low, but he's telling us, he says, I created everything from up high to down low. I created absolutely everything. Nothing exists that I did not create. And so he gives us a sense of the totality of God's recreative endeavor. So God looks at the heavens, he looks at the expanse of the earth, and he says, all these things will be made new. And that is something to rejoice in. He's going to recreate the heavens. He's going to recreate the earth. And you say, okay, well, I, I really kind of like this earth and I really kind of enjoy this earth. And I just, I don't know what all the hubbub's about. And I don't know why this is so significant. We get a, clip, a, a glimpse of it in this next line. He says, this thing is going to be so great. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to create so, so much joy in you. Look what he says. He says, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And so maybe you look at this and you say, oh, I'm so glad to know that. You see, because what plagues me is this thing that I said last week or this thing that I, I said a month ago or a year ago. Or I said to our child, I said to my spouse, or this thing that I did, this, this action, this sin that I was engaged in. And so I'm so thankful to know that, that these things aren't going to come to mind. I'm so thankful to know that, that in that place, I'm not going to be labored over the sinful ways I formerly lived. And that would be good. And that would be so amazing. But that isn't even half of it. This recreative endeavor that God's going to enter into, it's not just good enough to block out bad and painful memories. But it is so great. And it's so amazing that when we stand in that place and we behold his glory and his splendor, Think about all the most powerful, wonderful memories you have in your mind. I can remember standing in the delivery room. Our first son was just born, and, and he's out there, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in so much trouble. I have no idea what to do with this. But it's this overcoming sense of joy. And I can remember on our, on our wedding day when Valerie walked down the aisle and she stood beside me thinking, oh my goodness, I am overcome with such joy, and I hope she doesn't wake up. When we stand before God and enjoy his presence for eternity, the most grateful, amazing, splendid memory you have, you won't desire to draw to mind because that's the joy he's going to give you, because that's the gladness you're going to experience, and because that's what it's like to stand in his presence. The former things will no longer come to mind. This is the joy he calls us to focus on, And look, in the midst of this, he says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. So God doesn't just create it and say, look, you just kind of come in and just kind of have your way, just kind of enjoy yourselves. The command there for us, this recreative thing that God has spun up is created for, designed for our enjoyment. And the command that he gives us in that place is to enjoy it. 
Effectively, God throws open the gates to the new heaven and the new earth. He says, come in. The command for you is to enjoy. I have designed this place for your gladness. I have designed you to be a people of gladness. Look what he says. He says, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Over the course of this life, you may not be a particularly happy person. You might be the kind of person that people are perpetually walking up to and saying, hey, what's wrong? What's bothering you? You're like, I don't know. This is just my resting face. Leave me alone. Now you're bothering me. What we see in this is that God recreates us to be a people of gladness, enjoying his presence and enjoying this place of gladness. This is what he has set for us. And so you might begin to wonder, well, what is God's presence in this? What What do we begin to see? what he says in verse 19. He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God doesn't just recreate it and say, go have it. I'll see you later. He joins us in rejoicing. He's going to look at you. He's going to see you in this new heaven. He's going to see you on this new earth, and he's going to rejoice in you. He's going to see your friends, he's going to see your family, and he's going to know what it took to get you there, and he's going to rejoice in you. This is what he's going to do. It's not just that we're rejoicing at God sitting back in the old recliner saying, that's right, Mm -hmm. enjoy it, live it up. He is right there along with us singing shouts of glory and hallelujah. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad of my people. But he begins to kind of move through and describe the various things that they would look at in their life and say, man, my life is full of sadness and woe. My life is full of weeping. My life is full of bitterness. And so they begin to kind of describe all the various things that are oppressing them in their lives. And he says, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Think about that. There's not a town in this country. There's not a home in this world that is able to make it through a week, a month, a year without crying, without some form of sadness. But God is going to create this place. He's going to create this massive expanse full of all of humanity that is saved unto Jesus. And in this place... There will be no single tear. There will never be a cry of distress. I want you to think of the powerfulness of this message for these people who have been removed and taken into captivity. They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their spouses. Some of them are going to lose their children. And some of them may be even facing losing their own lives. The joy before them is that God is going to create a place where there are no tears, where there is no cry for distress because there is no distressing situation. No more shall it be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. How many of us, if we look around, We've had a relative pass away too soon. We've lost a child in infancy. We've lost a child in the womb. We are overcome with sadness. And there's this great sense of just saying, man, it should not be this way. 
her life, his life, should not have been cut short. This is not how it was supposed to turn out. The great joy set before those who identify with Jesus Christ and the saving work that he performed on the cross is that it doesn't have to be for you. You will enjoy eternity with no more loss, with no more pain. No longer will there be a child whose days are cut short. No longer will there be a man whose days are cut short. So he begins to go in and, and, and now describe these kind of positive attributes of this, these, this idea of blessing. And I want to be sure that you understand this. He's not describing kind of true-to-fact things here. He's describing kind of in your personal experience and kind of how you see things, know that the way that you see them now, if, if these things were to be there, this is kind of what it would look like. So he starts off and he says, the young man shall die a hundred years old. The young man shall die a hundred years old. And so this is kind of an odd description, is it not? We know that in the new heaven and the earth, there is no death. And there is no coughing. But we also know that if someone were to live to be a hundred years old, that we would not say to them, man, you are just really just young. I mean, come on now. You are just a young whippersnapper. Maybe we would say that, but we would be speaking in terms of sarcasm. And uh, them as a centenarian, they wouldn't appreciate it, and so then we'd have to attract back and say, I'm sorry, Justin told me to say that. And then they would forgive us, of course. But imagine this. He describes it in terms of someone that is 100 years old as having barely begun their time in this place. And so we begin to think of, man, that's just a long time. Oh, oh what's it going to be like? Well, oh, what if somebody's allowed to get away with some mischief? What if, what if sin is able to be introduced? And so he answers this question. He says, and the sinner will be a curse for 100 years, giving us the sense in this recreated world that our God will make, that his sense of justice still reigns, that his rule is firmly Established, he says, the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So God begins to move in verse 21. He says, they're going to build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. God is, is moving directly in line with what he said in Deuteronomy. And he's giving us the this, this sense that living in this place is to experience the blessing of God. And I can only think that also within this place comes the, the inborn ability to perform these things, because not many of us could build our own homes. <clears throat> but he says they're going to build their houses and inhabit them. They're going to plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Look what he says. Directly he moves to counter Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is this chapter that effectively says, if you do these things, this is going to be the punishment that God will bring your way. So if you do these things, you're going to lose your home. If you do these things, you're going to lose the, the crops of your field. If you do these things, you're going to lose your life. If you do these things, you could lose the land. And this was the reality facing those in Israel in the day of Isaiah. They were losing the land. But he told them, you shall not build in another inhabit. The homes they lived in at the time of Isaiah saying this, they were about to lose. Their father, their grandfather, their family had lived there for generations. They were about to lose that home. So he writes and describes a future reality of a place that they will never lose. He says, the plant, you shall not plant and another eat. You have to think that every year they went out and planted, they thought, will I get to see the harvest? 
Is this the year that we will go into captivity? Will I get to see the harvest? So God says, you don't need to worry. There's coming a time and there's coming a place that every effort you pour out, you will see its reward. You'll plant and you'll reap. And he begins to describe him. He says, for like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So God begins to describe their longevity. He describes just how incredible their life would be in terms of an oak tree. I had somebody tell me, we were talking about planting trees the other day. He said, do you know the best time to plant a tree? And I was thinking, fall, spring, not summer. He said, 50 years ago. I said, but that's not helpful. (laughs) He said, do you know the second best time to plant a tree? I said, I don't know. I'm sure you have something clever. He said, today. Today is the second best time to plant a tree. All of us will be trees taking with deep roots in eternity, growing with God forevermore. So this is why he describes us this way. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had been in the garden. They had experienced close fellowship with God. They walked with him. There is nothing he held back from them except for pain and misery found in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They believed a lie. They believed a lie, and so they took of the fruit, and they ate it, and their eyes were open, and they knew both good and they knew evil. And so God speaks to them, and he, he removes them from the garden. You remember this back in Genesis 3. You remember he talks to the woman. He says, it is greatly going to increase for you the pain in childbearing. And he turns to the man and he says, you're going to eat the fruit of the ground, but it's going to be difficult and it's going to yield to you thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard. And so he has frustrated their works. He's frustrated their endeavors. What we see in the recreated heavens and earth that our God will make is that all the effects of the curse are undone. So he turns to the man, he says, they'll no longer labor in vain. If you've ever weeded a garden, every time you pull a weed, you know that there are more in the ground behind that, and you curse them. You think, it's it's nice, it's clean, can we take a picture and blow it up and just have people walk by and see the picture? Because it's just going to happen again. The promise of God's eternal kingdom is purposeful labor. Knowing that our efforts and our work come to something, we will no longer labor in vain. He turns to the woman, he says, know that you will no longer bear children for calamity. Every effect of the fall is erased in God's recreative endeavor. He says, for they shall be the offspring, blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. For before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. God will absolutely know our hearts. He'll know what's on our minds. He'll know the questions that we have before us. And he will answer them. I can tell you that that within our home, I frequently think that I have this same ability. Valerie begins to speak, and I answer before she speaks. 
I anticipate that she's going to have a question, and I answer before she articulates the question. And frequently, I discover that I am wrong. (laughs) And that's something I'm occasionally working on. But what we find in this recreative place is the heart before God is laid bare. Think about your burdens today. Think about your hurts today. Your secret desires. The thing that you said, if I had this, I would have joy. If I had this, I would have peace. To spend eternity with God is to spend eternity with someone who has brought you through all of that pain and anguish. To spend eternity with someone who knows your needs before you are fully able to articulate them and who is able to speak, who is able to hear before you even are yet able to utter a request. This is the great care and delight that our God will bring to us in this place, this recreated heaven and recreated earth. And starting in verse 25, he gives us an idea of the peace of that place. Now, it's really interesting. He pairs together animals that would be uh, it, it would be a short-lived petting zoo if you were going to put them together. And so he puts a wolf with a lamb, and he puts a lion with an ox. I'm just saying if you put them in a room together, it's not going to go well for one or the other. And so look what he says. He says, you have this wolf and this lamb, and they're going to graze together. So he takes, he takes animals that exist in nature as opposites and antagonists one to another. The wolf only delights in the lamb's company in so much as the lamb is for dinner and not invited to dinner. The lamb is terrified of the wolf. But in this recreated heaven and earth, God has superintended his peace and even subdues their animosity towards one another. This wolf has abandoned his diet of lamb and now grazes alongside the lamb. And you have this lion. Isaiah thought, he said, what is the most ferocious beast I could come with? And so he comes up with a lion. And he says, and this lion is no longer ferocious. He's no longer terrible. He will eat straw just like the ox. This is the encompassing power of the peace God brings to bear on his recreated heaven and his recreated earth. Look what he does here. In the punishment of the fall, there's a curse upon man, there's a curse upon woman, and there's a curse upon the serpent. Satan, the deceiver, who led Adam and Eve into sin. God's justice still reigns in the recreated heaven and the recreated earth. For the punishment and the curse remains upon the serpent. It says, on dust shall be the serpent's food. God has created a place for you to long for. He's created a place to engender joy and hope in you. And it's not here. The great sadness many of us experience is expending all of our energy and all of our efforts trying to make this place 